Thank you. It is uh, really a privilege to be here. Let me go ahead and pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, I do ask that you bless our time now as we uh, consider uh, this matter, what you'd have us do in our culture at such an interesting moment. pray that you would be glorified by our understanding of your word, our understanding of what you would call us to do, and our ability to go forth and, and behave as you've commanded. pray these things in your son's name. Amen. So um, I, I think my goal is to keep my comments shorter than the time allotted so that there's time for a bit of uh, Q&A and discussion afterwards. So you might be thinking about if you want to um, follow up with questions about what I'm saying here or even just go off on some crazy rabbit trail. I'll, I'll do my best to, to, um, to stay with you. Um, so I'm going to talk about education broadly, and I want to just start by emphasizing that I'm speaking in a broad sort of way. And by that, um, I'm giving um, sort of a quick qualification or disclaimer that I'm not, um, I'm not actually making a plug for New St. Andrews with this talk because I think NSA is a very specific uh, kind of college education, and I don't have the conviction that despite the fact that uh, that's where I work, I don't have the conviction that um, if you don't go to New St. Andrews, you're in sin. I understand that... That there are there are other obedient paths that are out there, and I'm happy to make my argument and pitch for why I think New St. Andrews is a great college. Um, but I want to talk more about just the significance of Christian education in general and, and our our moment right now. And that means I'm talking about K to 12, what you do uh, at the school next door, what you do in your homeschooling, uh, but also it extends into college, and it's not just people that send their kids to New St. Andrews. It's wherever you're sending your kids or maybe choosing to not uh, pursue college uh, after after your high school education, it all kind of falls under this heading of this command that you have to raise your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, which is a pretty weighty thing. And I think that our, um, our failure as a church to um, take that commandment seriously is a big part of why we're in the kind of mess that we're in in, in our current cultural moment. Um, my impression in my um, brief couple days of traveling around uh, this part of Texas uh, is that that your particular location here is not as far along as other parts of America at the moment. In the Pacific Northwest where we are, we are dealing with just a whole world of crazy um, insanity nonstop. Uh, we have, you know, Seattle and Portland uh, a short, you know, six to eight hour drive uh, from us, and we have this kind of nonstop column of refugees uh, departing Seattle, Portland, California, just trying to get out of the crazy. And our own town, you've probably seen us in a little bit of the coverage on the news, our own town is inflicted with a fair bit of insanity. Um, but but you're, I don't think I see quite that level in this community, but I would want to emphasize that you're on the same train. Um, we're a few cars ahead, and we went into the tunnel, um, and you're still a few cars back, but you're going into the same tunnel, and it happens here um, at some point, just as it did uh, in where, where we are, if we don't, as a society, change where we're headed. So if the church wants to reverse um, the kinds of things that we're seeing now, and, and I'm just speaking sort of broadly by... Um, I think the, the the coronavirus moment is just sort of revealing a whole lot of other things that are going on, uh, a real godlessness that has reached up to our federal government and is starting to be imposed as national policy. 
Um, if we as a church want to reverse this path that we're on, we have to figure out what got us here. And I want to argue that I think not taking education seriously um, is really at the heart of it. Um, I think that, and this is, um, normally I would, I would try to be more, um, I don't know, tactful and like slowly kind of try to win uh, an audience over before sort of subtly starting to bring some more offensive things out. But I, I feel like we're at a point in our culture where we just don't have time to mess around anymore and we need to be much more um, blunt and direct about what is uh, what has gotten us to where we are because we had such a huge Christian presence that has had almost no salt, it seems like, in our cultural direction. And I think that where we are right now is we're seeing really the logical conclusion of what have been central tenets of American evangelicalism, and in particular, um, a, a more Baptistic ideology and a premillennial eschatology. Um, and and that is what I would want to really aim at, is this idea that, um, that your kids have to, um, that your, your kids' profession of faith is not authentic unless you have kept your hands off of them and let them come to a particular um, a particular conviction on their own and in their maturity. Okay, this idea that that it's insincere and not a real confession of faith unless you have sort of handed them to the world. They've gone through all of the world. They've fallen into all the typical sins that young people fall into, and then from that position suddenly repent and come to Christ. And that that's the only way you can know that it's a sincere confession of faith. Um, that is just, um, I, I think, a messed up um, and uh, you're, uh, not very well examined uh, presupposition or, or conviction. And what it is meant is that we have pushed our kids out of the covenant, told the world to raise them, and then been shocked to discover that they've been raised as worldlings, that, that they're that they have this worldliness uh, deeply ingrained in them. And then second of all, that premillennial eschatology, this idea that um, this, is, this is all going to hell in a handbasket in a second, so don't bother taking time to build institutions that will last a long period of time. Don't bother taking time to, um, to build something that you expect to still be there and still be functioning when your great-grandchildren receive it. Instead, um, you're going to try to get a quick profit out of whatever you can, believing that this all is going to be destroyed in a moment anyway. And the fact that we have done that means that we have both um, we have we have handed our children and our future over to the world, and we believe that that our children and our future are not things that are promised to us. Um, and, you know, our children and our future, those kind of actually go together, right? Uh, I mean, it is cliche about the children being the future, but actually, in most cases, they last longer than you. So they, they kind of are what, what we're handing this all off to. And in, um, in um, our Baptistic and premillennial uh, persuasion, we have said that the future and the children um, belong to the world. And what's weird is, if you think about it, I think the, the the progressive left, if you think in those categories, you suddenly realize that the progressive left is pedo-baptist and post-mill, right? in, at least in a worldly version of it. 
uh, in that uh, the progressive left has absolutely no qualms whatsoever with taking your children and saying, we will indoctrinate them. And, and we don't have this problem of believing that it's an insincere profession if they come to this conviction because they were raised in it, right? They, they are paedo-baptists as far as that goes. They're happy to claim the kids, to raise them in the catechism. They, they would delight in that. And they're, they're post-mill. Um, uh, Obama had um, this great quote, um, I think it was, um, he borrowed from Martin Luther King, um, where he describes the, and he, he, he quotes it a number of times, but I believe it was in um, his second inaugural address where he talked about uh, the long arc of history, um, uh, it always bends towards justice. And then he plots along the, the path of that long arc of history um, key moments in the civil rights movement from uh, Martin Luther King's uh, march up to the, um, the raids on a gay nightclub in New York. And that, those are various plots over, on this long arc of history that's bending towards justice, meaning we're going from the equality of the races to the distinct, to the destruction of the distinction between the genders. And it's all one long arc and it's going in a particular direction. So they have a theory, not just of history of what's happened, but a, a theory of their future history, which is their eschatology. They believe it's going in a very particular direction. And so this is why you'll have people describe like, um, you've probably heard the expression of you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. All right? When somebody uses that quote, don't, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. If you uh, believe that homosexuality is a sin, you're going to find out that you're on the wrong side of history. That's eschatology. They, they believe that they know the direction that the future is going, that it's this particular arc that they're, uh, that they're following this trajectory, and they know who's on the, on the good and on the bad side of that arc. And they have a deep conviction about where history is going. I think it's really... Um, sad that so many Christians, where we have such clear promises in Scripture, both of our children and also of our future, that we've handed um, those two categories off to the secular left. And they've done a very, very impressive um, job with it. Uh, if you think about it for a moment, um, our school system, our education system, which is, if you think about it, aimed at taking our children and telling them what the future is. That's, that's what you're doing when you're educating your children. And we've handed all that over to a body of people that's at, at war with our God and uh, with his gospel. And I think that that's, um, that's really tragic. So how do, we then, um, how do we then address this and actually deal with the mess that we're, that we're in? Um, I think that there are a couple of things. First of all, I think just straight up, we need to be much clearer on the promises that God has given to us for our children and the promises he's given to us for our future. I think that those two uh, tenets of theology, um, uh, our, our doctrine of baptism and our eschatology, are going to be really crucial for us to get our church onto the right path and to um, move us into a, a faithful future. So I'd say we really need to focus on those two questions. But then second, look at, um, look at how we got into the position we're in and what are some of the other things that we need to repent of. Um, one, I think, has been the way we have really, um, it has been very easy for us to take the easy path. Where, where we have some clear commands from Scripture about things like raise your children and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, we have this commandment that's given to us 
And then we have just kind of taken some very easy ways to hand that off, where, where we hand it off and give it uh, to someone else. Um, I see this um, in particular at the college level where, um, uh, so New St. Andrews where I am, and this is where I am starting to become a little bit of an NSA commercial, but I've given my disclaimer, so I do this with a clean conscience. Um, but at the, at the college level, NSA is one of the few colleges that we don't take any of the federal money. Um, and, and that is a really significant decision that a lot of people just breeze right over the top of. And I don't think I appreciated it as much. Like early on when I heard, the, okay, we're not going to take federal money, I thought of it as a, well, you know, those, that's money that doesn't belong to us by right. We shouldn't be taxing other people to pay these people's tuition. There's some, like, something like that. And I think that that's a part of it. Um, but as I step into um, the president role, and I spend a lot of time at conferences, meeting with other presidents, and then seeing the kinds of policy that, um, that colleges have to follow, you start to see it's a lot deeper than that. Um, first of all, I don't think we see the, um, the prominence of government money at the college level. Um, if, you're, if you're at a, a public state school, then obviously... You've got state taxes that are funding a huge chunk of the budget, and that makes sense. Then you have your Pell Grants and your um, federal student loans. And and so you've got the the state uh, is funding the college at this level, and then this level is where you pay your level of tuition. But in that tuition, at least half, if not more than half of that, is coming as uh, federal student loans and Pell Grants. And, And so the bulk of that, um, price tag is being carried by either the state or the federal government. It's a very small percentage that families are paying. So then you go over to the private schools and you think, okay, well, in the private schools it's going to be totally different because they have these huge tuitions, so obviously it's mostly being covered by private individuals. It's not the case because the private schools, they have a number of grants and whatnot that they are doing behind the scenes, but still the bulk of it is this big tuition check that you're supposed to pay. Well, um, here's another um, myth in private schools. A typical private Christian school tuition is like $35,000 annually, something like that. And you go, oh, my, that's incredible, that's terrible. Um, and the only way you could do that would be if you got a scholarship. Well, the, the, the secret that people don't know about is almost everybody gets a scholarship. Nobody pays that sticker price. That's just the sticker price that they put out there to, to set themselves apart and make them look like they're really prestigious and exclusive. So that $35,000 price, nobody pays that. They're, you're paying 15 or so, 15 to 18,000 is what most people are paying. You'll get a scholarship as soon as you apply. That scholarship is not real money. There's not like a fund somewhere that they're directing to pay that $20,000 scholarship you've got. It's just a discount that, that everybody gets. Okay. So if you don't get at least half the um, tuition price knocked off in your scholarship, you're paying more than almost everybody else, okay? Um, so you, you get that scholarship that knocks it way down. So now let's say it's $18,000. Well, then in that $18,000, that's where your Pell Grant and your federally subsidized student loan goes in so that by the time you actually are all done, at a private school, the parent's contribution tuition is the smallest piece of covering that, uh, that expense, so if you're a private college and you're looking at your, your stream of revenue, okay, it would be easier to 
cut tuition from parents than it would be to cut the tuition from the federal government. And so schools, private schools, are spending all their time making sure that they're in line and in compliance with the federal government. And this is why colleges in general, one of the things you've noticed, how how strange it's been over the last year, how you think of like your college student, if we go back to you know, the 60s or something like that. We think of the college students as the radicals, the individuals, the one who throw off the rules and the system and, and, and live in this kind of uh, rebellious counterculture way. And, and then now all of a sudden in our current moment, our colleges are the center point where all compliance happens. All of the like talking points of the left are mimicked by everybody at the college. Well, why is that? Because colleges are... Um, the, the central skill set of college administration is that of generating and showing compliance. I mean, that's just what college administrators do is they spend all their time showing compliance because that's how you get the federal money. And so our colleges are these places where everybody is very carefully groomed to stay in line and to not um, defy, not thwart, not anything. You'll probably notice here, my guess is your college community, the college portion of your community, is the most mask-happy portion of, of your, your, your area because that's where compliance now happens, and it really goes back to that federal money. Um, and so going back to my initial point, one of the things I, I see is how, um, how rarely we have done the hard thing and how quickly we have defaulted to the easy thing. Um, it's very difficult to step out from that system of federal money and to do something independent. But what you find is that until until you do that, you are you you take you know take the king's coin, you're the king's man. Um, or I think uh, Rob Borton's from Classical Conversations. His line was, "If if you take take the shekel, you get the shackle." Right? You 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 take that money, you have to follow in line and you have to do certain things. And you're going to see, like over the last four years, it has not been that intense because the Trump administration created quite a bit of space. Mostly Betsy DeVos was really incredible as uh, education secretary. And the, she undid a whole bunch of the stuff that Obama did and created all kinds of space for colleges. That's gone now, and it's, it's going to come back. And what we saw with Obama right at the end, and that's where Biden is going to start, will be the... Um, no more difference between men and women um, in your college sports, in your college restrooms, your college showers, your dormitories, all of those things, the distinction between men and women, and particularly at the point when you've got the transsexual issue, that you, you can't enforce any distinctions there anymore. And you're going to see that slowly walk through, and it's going to all of your Christian colleges are going to find ways not around the law, but around the biblical text, right? Uh, they're, going, they're going to find ways to excuse what they're doing to stay in compliance uh, with the law because they can't afford to lose that money. And the thing is, is you can. You actually can. You just have to decide to do the hard thing. And I would say, um, as a congregation, as you think about Christian education, it is hard. It really is hard. Um, K-12, to how do you... Um, you build a school, you, you, um, you become a homeschooling mom, you, you have to go back and basically like re-educate yourself to give your kids the education you never yourself received. 
It has a huge impact on your finances as you are paying tuition for your children or you are a single-income household because mom is at home with the kids where everybody else is a dual income and you're trying to stay in the same economy as everybody else and you are behind. It feels like you're behind and it feels like you have to do more with less all the time. And you constantly are, you're constantly having to make the decision to do what feels like it will probably be impossible. And yet, what's crazy is the way every time you make that decision, somehow God keeps blessing it. And He keeps making, you know, more oil come out of the jar that was supposed to be empty. And, and that's just the way God deals with you when you're living in obedience. But, you're, we're going to have to do the hard thing, which means you're going to have to do the thing that, that is a step of faith, right? Because when you can do the math, you don't need faith to do it. When you can't figure out how the math could possibly work, that's when you need faith to go ahead and obey uh, anyways. But I think that we need to learn to start doing the hard thing and making some of those hard decisions uh, with regard to our finances, with regard to our workload, with regard to our relationship with our cities, with our neighbors, we'll find ourselves in tension, but we have to decide that we're going to choose obedience. Um, the other thing that I would say that, that we have done, um, in addition to not being willing to do the hard thing, would be um, the way that we um, choose, we tend to choose jobs over faith. Okay, jobs over faith. And this one, I, I would especially point like, I would want to like really um, push this home with dads because I think that I know as a father raising my kids, what I, I can feel the natural inclination, and I see this in recruitment for NSA, and again, non-NSA commercial, I know that that's not the only way to solve this, but I see this with dads where we say our daughters, I want you to have a well-rounded and want you to learn the Bible, want you to all that, but with our sons, we tend to say, but you need to have a job, and that means you need to have certain skills. And we make this distinction between our daughters and our sons, and we say that our sons need uh, education to get them a job, but our daughters need education to make them faithful, right? And if you step back and think about that for a moment, that's kind of a scary, a scary decision. Because isn't your son going to be the spiritual leader in his home? Um, isn't he the one that actually is going to need that kind of education? And we say, no, 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 but he needs, he needs employable skills. Well, remember, Christ is the one who said, seek first the kingdom of God, all these things I'll add unto you. All these other things will be given to you. It is, it is scary to me how we regularly will say to our sons, alright, you go get the job and you go pursue the faith to our, to our daughters. And then, we're surprised at the, the, the church that we're, we're left with, right? Where um, men that don't know how to be spiritual leaders, that don't prioritize uh, being spiritual leaders, and that are just in it for the buck. And what I have discovered, what I see happening is, when we choose faithfulness for our sons, it turns out Jesus' promise works, right? Which is shocking. That if you teach a son, I want you to serve Christ with all of your life, and I'm going to do everything I can to prioritize equipping you for that. What's weird is that part of being a faithful Christian means getting a job, working hard, and providing for your family. And that God actually blesses that. And, and when you've raised your sons to serve Christ with everything, 
one of the things that you create is an ideal employee. You, you create the kind of person who has a strong work ethic, a sense of morality and personal responsibility, and a desire to get things done. And it actually is really remarkably employable. But what's weird is, and I think this is a strong secular move, is this idea that um, here's the job market and here are the gatekeepers for the job market. And the gatekeepers for the job market are these people that give you this diploma. Um, And as far as this goes, I think I'm probably actually preaching against New St. Andrews for a moment because we have... We have um, we have created this mythology that this college degree is necessary to get that job. And I think one of the things you all know is the, the secret that when you go from college into the workforce, you realize that most of the work that you do in your job, you learn at the job and not you didn't learn it in college. Um, so so there's, this, there's this diploma that's a certification that's necessary to get that job. And that diploma is generally attached to a godless ideology that we believe we have to all go through in order to get into the workforce. But what I'm saying is, what if that's all messed up and not true, and that the workforce is the world that God gave you and gave you dominion over, and all you need to go out and get busy in it is to um, go out and get busy in it. You're a a son of Adam. You're a a daughter of Eve. This, um, The creation mandate was given to you. You don't need a diploma for that. You just need hands that can get busy and get to work. So once we see the world like that, then education starts to come in and fill a very different need, right? Um, I don't need the, the diploma to get the job, but I do want an education that will teach me to serve God. And it, and it reprioritizes everything. I think that this idea that you need these this certification to get that job has been a way that the left has moved us away from a distinctively Christian pedagogy into an education that's more about employable skills. To the, um, to the extent that we've um, thought in terms of a distinctive approach to higher education, I think it has been mostly, like, like if you ask Christians, okay, as a Christian, why don't you tell me what, what you believe, what priorities and principles you believe are necessary as we talk about something like a college education? To the extent that we as Christians have done that, mostly what we have done has been come up with the sort of Dave Ramsey critique of the way finances in higher education work, and which is great as far as it goes, but it doesn't go nearly far enough, right? So, so if I take that approach, it's, well, don't go into debt going to college. I think that's a great idea. I think that's a really good principle. Don't go into debt. Don't become a slave to debt. Uh, to college in order to get your college degree. There are lots of ways to get that degree without going into debt. But there's so much more that we ought to be saying about that education, and we just stop right there. We just stop right there. Or, or even if you take that approach, and that's your only goal, then you're going to prioritize something like the Pell Grants and things like that, that that pay for your education without putting you in debt, but milk the federal system for all it's worth. So it's it's good, I think, to have a distinctively Christian view of the finances, but it needs to go into the education itself. What is the education you're getting, and why are you getting it? Um, now, the the strange thing is that the if you think about it, okay, I said that that we're talking about our doctrine of baptism, our doctrine of the covenant, and our children, and our eschatology, and and how those connect to um, 
how we're working in our culture and especially how we're approaching our education. What I think is strange, though, is the way that the left, though they have, I think that the left is more pedo-baptist than we are. But what's weird is that the left doesn't make babies. You know, isn't that strange that the left is mostly sterile? Um, it, it is on the left that you have the promotion of homosexuality, which cannot make babies uh, by biological definition, despite the fact that we want to outlaw that kind of biological observation. It's true that they, that doesn't make any babies. And then to the extent that they do have children, you have a, the carnage of abortion. And if somebody makes it through all of that, it's going to be limited to a very small number of children, whereas you look over at uh, the Christian right, and you have all of us with our 15-seater uh, passenger vans, you know, full of, uh, full of covenant blessings, right? So they don't make children. We make the children. Um, but what's crazy is that they don't need to because they have the theology, right? They're, they're the paedobaptists and the postmillennialists, so they manage to take our children. Um, our children are regularly handed off to them to be raised uh, by the left and become uh, progressive atheists. So we make them for them because we send them our children. What I would argue is if we as a church at large, and this will take quite a bit of work to push this through the broader evangelical church, because I know I'm speaking to a, an audience that when I say paedo-baptism and post-millennialism, um, you're not ready to throw me out for heresy. And I think that that's um, not very common throughout the rest uh, of the church. And so, But I, I think that that's the thing that we need to be advancing and explaining in a winsome way to the world. And I think we'll explain it in a winsome way at least to the rest of the church, by doing it winsomely ourselves, by, by actually living out that kind of life in a way that is full of life and joy and celebration um, in faithful covenant worship like this. And I think when that is pushed out through the church, that's when we repent and address some of the things that I'm uh, describing here. So I mentioned that I would wrap up a little bit early. I think I left myself uh, 10 minutes or so for a Q&A kind of session. So if there's anything there that I've provoked that I could follow up on, uh, please let me know or any other rabbit trails. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I, I think that I think that the next few years are going to do a lot of sorting for us. Um, we're going to see a bunch of colleges go under in the next little bit, and that's going to be um, so. That's and and as that starts to happen, there's kind of a revelation that people are waiting for. There are a lot of uh, I find this really frustrating because as a college president, I go to all of these meetings, and it's all the other college presidents there. And I hear what's actually going on on these campuses. And then I go, as a college president, I go and meet with lots of donors who are supporting these colleges, and I hear what they think are going on on these campuses, and they're totally different different stories. Um, the, the donor development and the recruitment side pitches this, um, pitches this idea that their evangelical colleges are kind of like basically right where Billy Graham left them, and nothing has changed, and, and it's all like that. 
But when you go to the actual schools, you find that the student body president is an out-of-the-closet homosexual, that the faculty has gone far progressive left, and that it's basically an indoctrination machine for, for unbelief and apostasy. And so, so what's going to happen, I think, over the next few years is really going to be the unveiling as we start to see what's really going on. And I think that the places where I think that the church needs to really dig in is um, colleges will feel it and they will answer to um, the recruitment pipeline and the fundraising pipeline. And if you want to get a college president's attention, you have to touch one of those two. Um, and, and I think that that's where... Basically, the world needs, the, the Christian church in America needs its eyes opened, and then we need to uh, um, address those two places. Quit sending your kids to unfaithful schools and quit sending money to those kinds of schools. And, and do, and I can give my great NSA pitch now. You can send them to us. <laughs> um, you can, but, but I would find those places that are faithful and be loud about it. Because the, the thing is, is, um, a, a Christian college president does not want to call attention to, say, a controversy over uh, the doctrine of marriage at their college. Because they don't want to call attention to that because they're scared that it will touch their accreditation or their, um, their federal funding or something like that. They don't realize that not speaking up on it should cost them their enrollment and all of their donor development. And I think that we just need to pay a lot more attention to what's going on on these campuses and and make it public and make people see what's really happening. Yeah. So, so like, um, you know, over the last year, some of those marketing videos that we did, I don't know if you saw any of those, but we did some very pointed kind of marketing pieces that I think those are the kinds of things that just sort of fly the flag. And it's funny how many um, other college presidents have, have congratulated me on those, told me how great they were, but then also said there's no way they could ever do anything like that. Like, I mean, it's so funny. I mean, it's something as simple as a video where it's like there's a men's room and a women's room, and the guy goes in the men's room, the girl goes in the women's room. That really should not be that controversial, you know? It really shouldn't. But I I don't know of another college, honestly, in the U.S. that would be okay with saying that out loud. Um, That And and I'm talking about Christian colleges. Um, And... uh, and it's just we, we are too scared to say some of the most obvious things. But I think you need to just say it. You just say it. And what, what we have noticed has been, um, so this whole pandemic for colleges has been crazy. Everybody's losing students right and left. Um, our freshman incoming class next year will be our record class probably by an extra 40%. Um, and, and so what's crazy is if you just would be faithful and say the truth, you'd be, you'd be amazed how many people will flock to you because of it. Um, just like from a, from a fundraising standpoint, it's um, not that I would do that just to get money, but it's good for fundraising. Like, I mean, when you, when you do that, people suddenly say, there's one place that will stand up, and they, they stream to it. And so when you, when you are bold in the controversy, God supports you. He brings you blessings to get you through it. And we're just scared of the kinds of controversies that are in front of us. Yes, ma'am.
Have I ever what? To money? Uh, not fundraiser money. I did. Um, I got a call from the, the Idaho State Department of Education a couple of weeks ago and said they had 250000 for us because of the PPP money that we hadn't taken yet. And he, he wanted to send the check. He just needed the, the details to send the check. And I said that we're not taking that. Um, so we, we would say, I've said no to that money a couple of times. <coughs> I, don't, I haven't had any donor who put um, restrictions on the money in some way that, that would have um, bound my conscience. But we're pretty good at scaring those kinds of people. Those people wouldn't come to me in any ways. You know, you've done all the sorting beforehand. Yes, sir. That's doing like what we're doing? Yeah. So, so, I mean, the sad truth is I don't see anybody else doing what we're doing. I see elements of what we're doing represented in other places. Uh, Hillsdale, Grove City are known for not taking the federal money, which I think that they've been really good, really brave, and really robust and have kind of paved the path that we're walking when it comes to not taking federal money. I don't think that they're, like with Hillsdale, um, they're more sort of like constitution, constitution, um, and, and there's a little bit of Christian coming in, but there's still the foundation is the American Constitution which is great, but I think that if you go, if your foundation is the Constitution, it's going to crumble. You've got to get deeper to the Word. And then you can put the Constitution on top of that. And I think that that's something that they, um, that they miss. And over long term, I think that that has an impact. But I think that they're doing really good work, and you can get a good education there. And the same with Grove City, although they're not the Constitution people. Um, I see other schools that are opting to go kind of in the direction we're going, like New College Franklin, which I, I think that they're getting something started, but they're, it's funny that I'm like less than 200 students and I still want to make fun of people for being small. Um, but they're, they're, they're like 15 or 16 students, so we're like 160. So we feel like we're, we're the big kid. Um, so, but I think they're, they're starting something uh, interesting there. I see, uh, you know, Patrick Henry um, is another one doesn't take federal money. I think they're very robust on their evangelical tradition um, convictions, and I think that they're going in a good direction. Um, they're they're kind of like Hillsdale in that they're all about government, um, uh, but I think that they're going in a, in a really good direction in some of the few people that are being faithful. I don't think you'd see them lean into the the cultural moment quite the way we have. I don't think any of those colleges would post the videos that we posted. Um, but I think that they would be completely in agreement with us on that. Yes, sir. Can you speak to how the university college, uh, what constitutes that education? Uh, obviously, curriculum and staff. Yeah. What else goes in? You send your kids to college. Who is educating? What, what, are, the, what are the things that are creating the culture? Yeah. Right. So that's that's an interesting one. What what's a fun um, or scary uh, little assignment? Sometime is to pull open. You can grab university budgets online, and to pull them open and just do a deep dive through them and see how is the money spent. I like to do that with University of Idaho 
because they're right next to us in Moscow, like a couple blocks from us. And what's really shocking is to see how little is actually spent on faculty um, and how much of your money is going towards all sorts of things that have nothing to do with the actual college education, this thing that you're supposedly going there to get. Um, you have, and, and I imagine that it's got to be a little bit different um, down here, but when you're like in the Pacific Northwest, the amount of money that is spent on the various virtue signaling offices, um, you've got all kinds of different offices of diversity and offices of women's studies and offices of whatever that are all around uh, the students. And so you've got the class itself, but then you've got the little city that is the college campus that you live in. And a lot of the indoctrination is really not so much coming from the classes as it is from dormitories, dorm life, residence life, and the various programs that are put on going around the classes. That is, it's like there, it's the babysitter system that is indoctrinating uh, the kids into their understanding of what is justice, what is truth, what is noble, what is worth fighting for, what are the things that ought to um, drive your passions. It's not their algebra class that's teaching them that. It's all of the extracurricular stuff that surrounds it and has a really profound effect on teaching them about the world that they live in. And it's funny. So I I think we're just about um, there, so I'll just wrap up with this. But um, a lot of times um, when I talk to parents, you know, I'm trying to sell them on a Christian college and particularly a classical liberal arts Christian college. And I'm almost without exception when I'm trying to sell that. I'm speaking to a crowd of people that just put their kids K to 12 through a classical system of one sort or another, either a school like you have with regents or with homeschooling or something like that. And so their question is always, I've already given them a classical education. I've given them a Christian education. So why would I do that for four more years? Isn't this now when they should go get a job and get learn employable skills and whatnot? Well, let me just... Um, present this um, sort of mental experiment uh, to you. If you could just remember back in your life the years 18 to 22, 23 in your own personal life and, and just ask yourself during those years, were those the years where nothing of real significance happened? You know, the, the pavement, you know, the concrete was dry because when you left high school and when you went to college, Nothing really changed, no big changes in your life, your personality, your convictions, or anything like that. Or, or when you think about those years, were those possibly the most formative years in your life with regard to either your faith, maybe you became a Christian during those years, or you were a Christian, but you came to own your faith in a unique way that lasts to this day. Your theological, theological convictions were examined and you came to a different persuasion that set you on a particular track for life. Your um, romantically, is your family what it is today because of the people you met during those years? Or and, and it can be for good or for ill. Are these the years when there are a whole bunch of things you did that you wish you hadn't and the scars of those things endure with you to this day? Or um, with regard to your church membership, with regard to your job itself, is that when you figured out the kinds of things that you wanted to do that you were called to be? Um, Far more often than not, what I've found is those years are some of the most formative years. And I think it's weird how we tend to think that those are the years that should be handed off where the people counseling you 
and forming you and walking you through all of that are at war with your faith and are seeking to take you in a very um, anti-Christian direction. I think it's really significant that you give those years to a community of faithfulness so that that, because I think the concrete is still wet. In fact, it's the most formative during those few years and you want those um, shaped by faithfulness. And I, and I get, I'll, I'll repeat the disclaimer. I don't think that that means everybody has to be at somewhere like New St. Andrews. Um, but I do think that it's a time that you have to take really seriously. If you're going to go to be a, a mechanical engineer, you can't do that at New St. Andrews. You need to go to a large university to learn the, the, there are certain classes that you have to take. You're not going to get an NSA. So there are plenty of, Places, if there are certain jobs, if you want, you need to go to certain schools to get them. If you want to be a doctor, if you want to be a nurse, you need to go to a place that's going to give you that kind of education. But you can seek to do it deliberately, where you're looking for faithful community, where you're privileging faith over the job, where, or you do it in a certain order, where you do a certain kind of degree first, and then you add certification on after that. There are a number of ways to chop it up and make it happen. But just don't think that these are inconsequential decisions and be willing to do the difficult thing because I think the future of the church is really riding on it. I think I'm, I'm over, so I better wrap it up now. Let me close in prayer. Father, again, we thank you for your promises to us, Lord. We thank you that um, our children are yours and we thank you that the future is yours. We pray that we would walk in obedience and live this out in a profound way and that you would change uh, the course of our country's history because of it. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.